If you would, uh, if you have your Bible, if you'll turn with me, we're beginning a series on the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 this morning. Uh, I've always wanted to preach on Acts. I've, I've taught it multiple times, and it's a wonderful book. And it seemed like Easter Sunday was a good, good Sunday to start uh, the book of Acts because it focuses on uh, the continued work of the risen Lord Jesus. So it's an appropriate Sunday to begin preaching through the book of Acts, even though the narrative starts after the resurrection. Uh, nonetheless, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Pay careful attention. This is the word of the living God. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, please be seated as we pray. Lord, this is your word. You have inspired it to be written. You inspired Luke to write these things, uh, to record them for our encouragement and our edification. You have preserved them throughout the ages uh, that we might be able to read your very word. And so we ask now this morning that your spirit would add his blessing to the reading of your word, that the spirit would illumine our hearts and minds to understand what has been written to receive it with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. And we pray that you would help us to see Jesus. For we pray in his name, amen. Amen. Uh, the book of Acts. Uh, it's appropriate in this first sermon to give a little bit of introduction to the book of Acts itself uh, as we begin this series on it. Uh, you should know, and you could probably tell from just the opening verses uh, that Acts is picking up from a previous book. Acts is kind of part two. It's a sequel to an earlier work. Uh, and as you know, with a, a part two, it's usually good to familiarize yourself with part one uh, before you get into part two. But in this case, uh, we'll just start with part two. Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. You probably know that Luke wrote his gospel, and then wrote Acts as uh, kind of the continued story of Jesus at work through his church. I remember in uh, high school, some friends of mine, uh, we got on a kick where we decided we wanted to watch um, all the mafia movies that had been made. Well, maybe not all of them, but we wanted to watch the big ones. And so we went, went to Blockbuster. I remember Blockbuster. There was one remaining in Alaska, or not Alaska, it was somewhere out, out west, but I think it's gone now. Uh, Blockbuster is no more, but you used to be able to go to a store called Blockbuster and rent these things called video cassettes. Do you remember these? And you had to rewind them or else they penalize you for it. 
So we went to Blockbuster, we rented The Godfather, which was two cassettes, because it wouldn't all fit on one. We were all excited, came home and stuck the cassette in the VCR, if you remember those, and began to watch this movie, and it was a little bit confusing. We were trying to kind of put together the pieces of this story, and as it came near the end of uh, the cassette that we were watching, the credits started rolling, and we realized that we had put in the second tape first and had not watched (laughs) the first one. Getting into the book of Acts may feel like you're jumping into part two of this story, and indeed you are, but you're familiar enough with the first part of the gospel story to kind of know what leads up to it. And Luke here in the beginning of Acts points back several times in these preliminary verses, points back to things he's already written. Uh, he notes that he is ri- he's writing to a man named Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus is. Uh, it, it could be kind of a pseudonym. The name means lover of God, and so it could be kind of a representative name for all Christians. Probably it's a particular individual. Uh, maybe his name is Theophilus. Maybe that's just what Luke is, is calling him. Uh, but either way, it's likely that Luke has written both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to this individual for the purpose of giving Theophilus certainty, assurance, In the Gospel of Luke, he's writing this detailed account of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension at the end of Luke's Gospel. He's writing this detailed account of the ministry of Jesus to Theophilus to give him certainty that the Gospel is true, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he really did die for sins, that he really did rise again from the dead and ascend back up into heaven And now he's writing part two in the book of Acts to the same individual with a similar purpose, to confirm to Theophilus and to us that the church is the work of Jesus, that the work of Christ continues in and through his people, the church. It's a a sequel. It's Luke part two, if you will. And it's a unique book. It's kind of a hinge book in the New Testament. It's the only book, if you think about it, it's the only book in the New Testament that narrates events after the resurrection of Jesus, after his ascension, rather. It's the only book like it in the New Testament. If we didn't have uh, the book of Acts, um, we wouldn't know the historical setting for much of Paul's life and his letters. He gives us some details in the letters, but not a whole lot. The book of Acts provides most of the background information that we know about Paul's life and ministry, why he, where he went, uh, what he did there, the churches that he had contact with, why he's writing these letters that form the, the rest of the New Testament, most of the rest of the New Testament. Acts provides that for us where no other book does. Acts gives us as well a picture of the life and ministry of the early church from its infancy in Jerusalem to its spread throughout the Roman Empire as it ends in Acts chapter 28 with Paul in prison in Rome on house arrest and yet proclaiming the kingdom of God with boldness, even as people are coming to visit him and he's sharing the good news of the kingdom with them. And so it covers the life and ministry of the early church. It's kind of like looking through a family photo album, if we still have those. You see 
the beginning, the birth. You see the early days. You see infancy and continued growth. Many of the accounts in the book of Acts are unique, non-repeatable, not things that we should expect to continue to happen in the life and ministry of the church today. Things like Pentecost, things like Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead as they bring in a portion of their proceeds and lie about it to the apostles. We shouldn't expect to see those types of events in an ongoing and repeated fashion. Some things that happen in the book of Acts are unique. They're once for all. They're not to be repeated. Once they are established, you don't establish it again. And yet there are other parts of the book of Acts that are normative for the church today. Uh, They're the pattern that is set for the life and ministry of the church in, in whatever context the church finds itself, whether that's here in York, South Carolina, or whether it's in the the ever-growing and expanding church in the Southern Hemisphere, in Africa especially, wherever the church is, much of the book of Acts provides for the church the pattern and the norm of what the Christian life ought to look like, what the church's ministry ought to look like. Though the church is different than it was then, it's the same spirit who is at work today, it's the same risen Jesus who is at work today, It's the same message of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's the same call to repent, to believe, to walk by faith, and to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And Acts, as a final introductory note, Acts is an important book because in many ways, and this is maybe kind of the fundamental point for us, in many ways, the book of Acts is meant to encourage and renew the church in an ongoing way in our calling and vision. And you see this over and over again as we're given assurance of Jesus' resurrection, proof of God's work among various people groups, and the triumphant onward march of the gospel, even in the face of opposition. So Acts is Luke, part two, the continued story of Jesus, written with much the same purpose as the book of Acts. Now, for some of you, particularly some of you younger ones that have have learned the book of Acts in various settings with me, uh, I've taught you that the book of Acts is about something, so that when I say Acts, you say, okay, you can say a little bit louder. When I say Acts, you say church, yeah. So we've taught over the years that the book of Acts is about the church, and I, I couldn't find it. Wallace used to have, he probably still has it. Wallace had this transparency, y'all remember this, the walk through the Bible uh, material that he had where it was a transparency and it was an axe uh, chopping out the shape of a church building from a block of wood. Does anybody remember this? I love that picture and I couldn't find it anywhere to put it in the bulletin because that's the image in my head when I think about the book of Acts. Get it? It's an axe and there's a church, so axe, church. Okay, all right. Didn't quite work the way I thought it. Uh, would. I want want to propose to you a slightly different way this morning of thinking about the book of Acts. Okay, thank you. (laughs) That may happen from time to time. Uh, Rather than just simply thinking of the book of Acts as about the church, which it most certainly is about, uh, really the book of Acts in, in a major and an important way is about Jesus building his church. It's not just about the church and what we're to be doing, 
how we're to be living, the types of stuff we should be occupying ourselves with, though it is about that. It's not about less than that. But at root and fundamentally, the book of Acts is about the risen and ascended, exalted Lord Jesus now continuing his work by the power of his Holy Spirit through his people who have been made witnesses to his resurrection. That's a mouthful, but you can think about it like this. Some authors over the years have, su- have suggested that instead of the book being called, probably what you have the t- at the top of your uh, first page of the book of Acts, is it says the Acts of the Apostles. Is that what most of you probably have? Some have suggested that instead of calling it the Acts of the Apostles, uh, which the book itself never describes itself in that way, we should instead call it the Acts of Christ. The Acts of Christ. That the book of Acts is really the continued story of Jesus through his church. The gospel is not, the gospel stories, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not, in other words, the end of the story when it comes to Jesus's life and ministry. He continues today the work which he began on earth in a different way, but it's still his work. And so you notice in verse 1, Luke says, he references his gospel, calls it the first account, the first book, first word I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus, what? All that he began to do and teach, which implies he hasn't stopped. It didn't stop with the resurrection, that there's a, a part two to this story, that the book of Acts continues And even, we should say, continues today through his church in the present age. The acts of the risen Lord Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit through his people bearing witness to his resurrection. And so as we go through this book uh, over the course of this next year at least, what we'll see over and over again uh, is that very thing will be brought back time and time again to this pressing reality that Jesus is alive, that he has risen, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he has poured out his spirit upon his church, and he is actively at work now through you, his people, bearing witness to his resurrection, calling people to faith and repentance. And again and again, we will be finding ourselves asking this question, what is the church? What is the mission that Jesus has given to his church, and how is he now at work carrying out that mission through us? As we begin to look at these verses, uh, these verses largely deal with preparation. Jesus is preparing his church for his ongoing ministry through them. Uh, And so you notice Luke goes from addressing Theophilus in verses 1 and 2, Uh, to describing what Jesus did in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension back up into heaven prior to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, And I just want to point out two things that Jesus does to prepare his church for ongoing ministry uh, as his people. Number one, he testifies to his resurrection. He testifies to his resurrection in verse 3. Luke says, to these, referring to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these also 
He presented himself alive after his suffering, his death, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Notice Luke's emphasis here. What did Jesus do in those 40 days among his disciples? He convinced them that he was alive. Uh, You remember the story of Thomas at the end of John's gospel. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has appeared to some, not all, but some of his disciples uh, on that first resurrection day. But Thomas was not there. Thomas shows up after Jesus has left and they're all you know, they're all amazed that Jesus has risen from the dead. Even though he told them he was going to die, he was going to rise again, they were a little bit slow to grab hold of what that meant and to believe it. But there he was. He showed up in their midst, alive from the dead. And, and then he, he goes away. He departs from them. Thomas comes in a little bit later, the Apostle Thomas, and they start telling him, we've seen Jesus. You remember what Thomas says. He's a little skeptical. Right? We call him Doubting Thomas, which... You know, we should cut him a break because he believed after that. But he's got this uh, name now, Doubting Thomas, because he doubted. He was skeptical that Jesus rose from the dead. And so you remember what Thomas said. All right, show me the proof. I want to see the scars in his hands. I want to see the scars in his feet. I want to touch his side where they pierced him with the spear. So a week goes by, the next uh, first day of the week, Jesus again appears to his disciples, and guess who's there this time? Providentially, Thomas is with the disciples this time, and Jesus goes up to Thomas directly, and he says to him, see, look, put your finger here, touch my wounds, touch my side, you'll see the wounds from the spear, stop being unbelieving, And now believe. He had to convince them. Through many convincing proofs, he demonstrated to them that he was alive. You'd think it would have been just enough for Jesus to show up and say, hey, it's me. (laughs) I'm here. But he had to convince them. Uh, This was not normal. This was unique. This has only happened once to Jesus in this way. And so he convinces them of his resurrection. This word that's used here for convincing proof, uh, it's the strongest word, I've read, uh, that it's the strongest word in Greek to express proof beyond doubt. In other words, this is not just a story that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. It's not just some ancient tradition that compels us to get up, some of you, at 4 a.m. and cook a big breakfast for a bunch of people so that we can all gather together and fill our bellies around a table and feel good about ourselves. It's not some ancient story that we don't really believe, but we feel like it's part of our tradition, and so we have to kind of continue thinking that it's important in some way. It's not legend, it's not myth, it's not made up. Jesus really rose from the dead. He really died and was buried in a tomb, a borrowed tomb, and really rose again on the third day, on that first resurrection day, that first Lord's day. Which means 
that if that's true, everything changes. Everything changes with regard to your sin and your relationship to God. It means that there's hope for all because Jesus is alive from the dead. He has conquered the greatest enemy that we have, our sin and separation from God, the death that is the result of sin. Jesus has conquered it by dying in our place and really rising from the dead and then showing up to his disciples and convincing them that he really rose from the dead. It's not just a story we tell ourselves. It happened. Otherwise, there'd be no point in what we're doing today. Really, really, there'd be no point to everything that we do if Christ had not risen from the dead. We'd still be stuck in our sin, still be searching for meaning, for hope in life. But Jesus is risen from the dead. He convinced his disciples through many convincing proofs. You can read about uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, he, he talks about Jesus appeared to these guys. He appeared to these guys. He appeared to 500 people at one time. That doesn't happen if it's not real. There's no such thing as a mass hallucination where everybody sees the same thing at the same time. Do you know what they call that? Not hallucination. Reality. Christ rose. Uh, there were people alive when Paul wrote that to the Corinthians who would have been at that 500-man event who saw Jesus risen from the dead, who could have stood up, if it wasn't true, who could have stood up and said, wait a minute, I was there, I didn't see anything. But they didn't, because he really rose from the dead. Through many convincing proofs, he testified to his resurrection from the dead. Now, why, why was he doing this? Not, not just to confirm to them that he was risen from the dead, that that's at the heart of it. He was testifying to them of his resurrection, convincing them through many convincing proofs that Christ that he really rose from the dead because they had a mission to do. And that mission was not about them. It was not about uh, their brand or their popularity or about anything that they contributed. Their mission as the church, as the people of God, all focused on their being witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that next week as we get into the next section where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. But in order to be a witness, they have to know it. They have to experience it. They have to see it. They have to be convinced that Christ has risen from the dead. So he testifies to his resurrection, teaching them about the kingdom of God so that they can go forth from there and give testimony that Christ has risen from the dead. The same is true for us today. You, I'm guessing, have not seen Jesus in the flesh uh, if you have, you can talk to me later about that, but I'm pretty sure none of you have. But if you are in Christ, you've been raised with him, as the choir sang earlier. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have experienced that movement from death to life that is characteristic of resurrection. Movement from being dead in sin to being alive with Christ and being raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. You have not seen him in the flesh, but you don't need to. You have his testimony in the written word of God, and you have, if you're in Christ, the experience that confirms what has been written in the scriptures, that Christ really is alive, and he really brings 
people dead in sin alive and forgives them and makes them new creatures in Christ. You have experienced his resurrection and also, therefore, can testify to its reality. Jesus prepares his church for ongoing ministry by testifying to his resurrection, first to his disciples, so he convinced them in many ways by many convincing proofs that he was alive, and then to us as we receive that good news handed down throughout the ages that Christ died, Christ is risen, Christ will indeed come again. But notice also he doesn't just testify to his resurrection, to this objective fact of history. He also promises his Holy Spirit. Look with me at verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus reminds them of his promise, which you can read in Luke 24, verse 49, or in John 14 and 15, that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. In John's gospel, the Holy Spirit is called another helper. Uh, the Spirit has been with Jesus from his birth, even before that. The Holy Spirit wove together the body of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit has been Jesus' constant companion throughout his entire ministry. He is the ultimate witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says he's going to give his disciples his Holy Spirit so that they can carry out this mission of bearing witness to his resurrection. And notice he tells them to wait. He tells them to wait. Don't leave from Jerusalem until you receive this promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, why do they have to wait? I mean, they've seen Jesus. They've, they've eaten fish grilled on the beach with him. Thomas has touched his wounds and been convinced that he's alive. They, they are witnesses, indeed, that Jesus is alive. Why does he tell them, wait, just, just wait a little bit? I mean, if you, if you experienced that, wouldn't you just be bursting? Wouldn't you be barely able to contain this news that Jesus who died is risen and you want to go out and you want to tell everybody? But Jesus tells them, wait, don't do anything until you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Why does he tell them this? He tells them this because they don't just need facts that's good, need that. They don't just need facts, they need power. They are being entrusted, the church has been entrusted with a mission that we can't carry out in our own strength and power. We need the power of God at work in God's people in order to effectively bear witness to his resurrection, to call people to faith and repentance. And as we go through the book of Acts, you'll see the Holy Spirit is all over the place. He's going ahead of the disciples and of others who are traveling and spreading the word. He's preparing hearts to receive this good news and to respond to it with faith. He's bringing conviction. He's opening blind eyes. He's unstopping deaf ears so the people can see and hear and receive the gospel and be made new. We've been given a task that will only be successful if the Holy Spirit is at work in and through the people of God. If we're going to bear witness to Jesus, it has to be in the power of his Holy Spirit and not 
in human strength. It will not work. It will fail. You see, the church is not simply to be going about its business being busy, doing, doing churchly things, filling our schedule with things that seem important and feel like they're necessary and maybe feel like we've got to do these things because this is what the church does. The church has been given a very specific task of bearing witness to the gospel, testifying to the resurrection, proclaiming the good news to all nations, making disciples of Jesus. And we cannot accomplish that on our own, but only by the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells them to wait because they need the Holy Spirit in order to do the mission that he has given them, which echoes back to Matthew's gospel and the way it ends when Christ entrusts his church with the Great Commission, tells them while going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching, etc., but he gives them a promise with that commandment, with that commission. I will be with you always. Well, he's, he's in heaven, isn't he? Jesus has ascended back up into heaven. How, how is he with us? Acts tells us he's with us by his spirit. He has sent the spirit to be his witness to us so that we might be witness to the world. Now that he has gone... His spirit comes to continue the work that Jesus began and to apply the work that he accomplished in his cross and resurrection. Jesus continues to build his church by the power of his spirit through our bearing witness to his resurrection. And so he prepares his disciples here by convincing them of his resurrection and by promising his Holy Spirit. So what does this mean for us uh, today, in addition to some of the things we've already noted? What does this mean for us today? Uh, three things, very briefly. This should give us focus. This should give us focus in who we are as the people of God, who we are as the church of Jesus Christ and what we are to be about. Who are we as the church? What is our mission as we see in the book of Acts, the church moves out from Jerusalem to from Jerusalem and mainly Jewish uh, hearers all the way across the Roman Empire uh, to becoming a multi-ethnic gathering of people who believe in Jesus. And in that, we see the church's mission being carried out, that we are the people of Christ who bear witness to the resurrection of Christ through worship, through evangelism, through Christian fellowship and community, so that the world might see the good news of Jesus at work in us as we bear witness to who he is and what he has done. So it gives us a focus in who we are and what we are about. We are the people of Jesus bearing witness to his resurrection. It also should give us not only a focus, but give us confidence. It should give us confidence if the book of Acts is more appropriately titled The Acts of Christ by His Power Through His People, then we can rest assured that the work that's given to the church is not primarily our work. It, it's not about us. It's about Him. It's about Jesus. It's His work through us. And that should give us confidence that it's not our power, it's not our attractiveness. It's not our ability, it's Jesus' power. 
It's the beauty and the attractiveness of Jesus that is at work in his church. That's what we're proclaiming. That's what we want people to see, to know, and to believe. That it's not a message primarily about us or about what we ought to be doing. It's primarily a message about who Jesus is and what he has already done for us. His life, perfectly obedient to the Father, counting for us as perfect righteousness. His death, giving himself as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for the penalty of our sins, to remove from our shoulders the very wrath of God that we deserve, and to restore us to his loving favor. His resurrection, confirming that his work was accomplished and accepted on the cross, and that he has broken the back of death, never to die again, and gives us the hope of eternal life. It's about what he has accomplished in his life, his death, and resurrection, which ought to give us confidence. We have a focus, we have confidence, and then finally, we can rejoice. We can rejoice. We're reading about the disciples pre-Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them to give them this amazing confidence to go forth with the gospel, and we stand on the other side of that. We can rejoice that we stand on this side of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that what they were waiting for in these verses, we have indeed received. For all those who are in Christ Jesus have the Spirit in them. And so may we remember who we are as his church. May we remember his mission that he has entrusted to us to bear witness to his resurrection. And may we remember that we can do that in confidence because he has given his Holy Spirit as the power by which we testify to his resurrection from the dead. Would you pray with me?